All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. All right, today on Making the Argument, we're going to ask a very important question. Can conservatives trust Tulsi Gabbard? But we're actually going to go a little bit deeper than that. I actually had an opportunity to meet Tulsi this last weekend, uh, had a conversation with her. Uh, we follow each other on social media. It was very interesting, but I immediately got comments from conservatives on social media as soon as they saw us in a picture together going, you can't trust her. So what we're going to discuss today is not just Tulsi Gabbard. We're going to discuss major philosophical realignments that are taking place. This is the first time in my lifetime where I have seen this number of outspoken Republicans going over to the left and a bunch of outspoken Democrats going over toward the right. So we're going to discuss why that is happening, what it means, all of that coming up in this episode of Making the Argument. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today. I think after listening to today's episode, you should walk away better equipped to have some tough di discussions with friends and family members. If that's the case and you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you will join us in our volley chat, which you can go to by uh, viewing the link in our description and joining us there. We'd love to hear from you. All right. I am Nick Freitas, your host, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, an okay guy. With me, as always, my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. Hello, everyone. And of course, our... Hey. Political prognosticator, our resident historian, all of the above, Christian Hines. How you doing? I'm doing all fine. I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm oh, good. excited for that. No, no, that's good. That's good. Our resident <laughs> and now, pessimist. And now <laughs> the, we're getting to the pessimism later. Okay. And now we have our, of course, our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. It's always a pleasure to be here. All right. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad it's always a pleasure to be it here. It is. All right. So here's here's the question today. So I, I posted a picture with myself. Tulsi Gabbard, uh, Yesley Vega, a good friend of mine, Brian, who's involved with um, MMA and things like that. We were all at a rally for Yesley Vega, who's the Republican candidate for the Virginia 7th District. It's a district I ran for two years ago. Um, she's a great candidate. Definitely go vote for her. But Tulsi Gabbard made the trip. She made the effort to go all the way from Hawaii out here to Virginia in order to campaign with Yesley. But when conservatives saw that picture, not all, but some, they immediately said, you know, you, you can't trust her. You can't trust Tulsi. Like, you know, I thought better of you, Nick. Like, you should know better. She's not. Here's the one I really love. She's not a true conservative. All right, so here's my response to that. Nowhere have I seen Tulsi Gabbard say, I'm a true conservative. Tulsi Gabbard, to my knowledge, is not going out there to run for president as a Republican. She hasn't even joined the party. She hasn't joined the Republican. She's not saying any of that. What, what Tulsi Gabbard has done, and, and not just like yesterday, right? This started back in 2019 and, and even before that. Tulsi Gabbard has started to question the direction the Democratic Party was going. And she was pretty vocal about it in the Democratic presidential debates when she ran for president. And as time went on, she found herself philosophically no longer aligning with the party that she had been a member of for 20 years and elected member of Congress to. And she didn't just say, you know, oh, I'm going to leave donkeys bad, elephants good. She actually did a whole podcast explaining why she originally joined the Democratic Party, the benefits that she saw, the philosophy that she thought it represented. And then she gave a very long and detailed explanation, kind of like her declaration of independence, right? It wasn't just one thing. She had numerous things that she pointed about where she no longer felt that the Democratic Party aligned with her philosophically. And what I found interesting was when she was discussing the specific points, there seemed to be a common theme. And a, and a big portion of that common theme is 
Tulsi Gabbard is someone that is skeptical of the concentration of power at the federal level in Washington, D.C. Now, there's other things that you could point to as well, but what, what came across to me is very, as a, again, a common theme, and, and all the points she brought up was she has a general mistrust of this concentration of political power and how it's currently being used, manipulated, and corrupted. So here's what I would tell conservatives. I'm not telling you to go out and get your Tulsi for president sign in your yard. And she's not asking for that. But she's willing to have an open civil discussion that is both intellectually honest, intellectually consistent. She's willing to establish standards of dialogue with respect to what are the standards that we're going to judge a particular philosophy or policy. If you're not willing to have that conversation, we're in trouble. Well, we're not willing to, we haven't been willing to have that conversation since like the eighties, if not earlier. I mean, and and we, you and I actually were up here pretty late yesterday talking about the precursor to this episode. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we brought up, we brought up a lot of things in that conversation, but one of the things that we talked about was how there is an increasing amount of polarization within the country, within the parties. And for so long, you had certain people that were members of the Democratic Party or members of the Republican Party. But, you know, when you looked at their their top priority list, right, their one, two and three top issues, they, you know, somebody like 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 Gabbard, for example, and and, and th- this is actually going to be in her defense, right? Like, yes, she's on the left when it comes to a lot of things about economics. She's on the left when it comes to things about health care. I'm pretty sure that she wants a larger welfare state than I do. Um, I'm pretty sure that she might be in favor of a higher tax bracket than I do. But when you look at the things that she cares the most about, because we all have things that motivate us more sure. than others, right? There's a million political issues out there, but you know, people usually can identify if they're politically active, their top one, two or three issues. Like my number one issue is like monetary policy and fiscal policy at the economics is what got me into politics. Yeah. Obviously you can probably tell that from some of our previous podcasts. That's not to say that I don't care about say like gun rights. I'm very, very pro second amendment, but the thing that is my true passion that I really, really care about that I, I like go out of my way to like try to research is the economic stuff. Well, in Tulsi's case, the thing that she's really passionate about isn't necessarily the economic stuff or the healthcare stuff or, or or some of these other like fiscal things that she's definitely on the left on, at least compared to us. The things that she's really passionate about are things like constitutional protections on the Fourth Amendment, freedom of speech and issues, civil liberties. Yes. Reigning in the surveillance affairs. states, yeah. foreign affairs like those are her. You can just tell from from talking to her or listening to her that those are the things that she cares more about than the other things. That's not to say that she doesn't care at all about those other things. And that's not to say that we won't have disagreements on those things. But when you look at the things that she's passionate about, that she's always like stood up and fought for. Those are things that are in line with liberty conservatives on the civil liberty front, on the uh, the, the surveillance state, when it comes to reining in the out-of-control FBI and DOJ and some of these agencies that are being weaponized against Americans. She's never been in favor of that stuff. Well, I, I think what's, what's also interesting is that it, I remember like in 1994 when Newt Gingrich and the Republicans like really took over the House. And it was the first time Re- Republicans had controlled the House, I think in something like 46 years. I Since mean, it was, the 50s. Yeah, it was, it was significant. It was huge. And, and when that happened, I remember there was, there was various Democrats where the Democratic Party had gone kind of so far left under like, you know, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton. I, that was considered far <laughs> left at that point because Hillary Clinton was trying to do like Hillary care. Yeah. But then you also had before that, it was people like Mondale. It was people like Dukakis where very, very soft on crime, right? They, these are all the issues that were going on. Huge Republican takeover. And then you actually saw a lot of what they used to call blue dog Democrats, which were more of your centrist Democrats actually switching over and becoming Republicans. So this was things like um, Bill Nighthorse Campbell in, in Colorado had been a Democrat. Shelby in Alabama. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Shelby 
Shelby and Alabama, you, you had these people that were switching over and now aligning with the Republican Party. Now, there's other times where you saw, you know, massive like Democrat realignments where you saw like Arlen Specter, who was a Republican senator from Pennsylvania, who then became a Democrat. And then at other times you saw like Joe Lieberman um, or, or Zell Miller down in Georgia. So we, we've seen different times where there have been you know, Republicans that switched to Democrat, there's been Democrats that switched to Republicans, but, but it was usually all going in one direction based off of kind of what party was in the ascendancy at the time. This is the first time I can remember in my lifetime where you started to see, you, you, you had this walk away movement, right? You had this walk away movement that was taking place, which was a bunch of former progressives. And you had people like uh, Dave Rubin, Dave Rubin is a good example of someone that used to be a left-wing commentator. Tim Poole used to be more left-wing. Now, Dave's not necessarily going to come out and say, oh, yeah, I'm a Republican. Or Tim Poole's not going to necessarily come out and say, like, oh, yeah, I'm a conservative Republican. But they definitely went from left end of the spectrum to more of your, your right or even libertarian end of the spectrum. And, yeah. and definitely favoring more Republican politicians over Democrats. So you had that going on, but then with Trump, you also had something similar going on with like people like Liz Cheney, right? And and what is it? Um, There's lots. What was it? Of yeah, Denver Riggleman, right? Made a big deal yeah. out of no, endorsing. I think that a lot of the the people on the right who switched to the left over Trump and things like that, it, it all really smacked of sour grapes. Is it? Well, there wasn't really a philosophical reason. Well, here's Necessarily. what I, I think. And, and again, Bill Crystal, we Bill, loved him. Bill Crystal. Yeah, that was a huge Bill Crystal, the Lincoln Project. Right. You had all these. So you, you really this is the first time I can remember in my lifetime. Well, simultaneously, you have prominent people on the left that are now identifying and switching more with with the right. And, and again, it's not every aspect, right? And then you have prominent people on the right now going out and actively campaigning for the Democrats or the left. And, I, and I've been trying to look at like, okay, what's the common thread among all this? Like what, what is – something has to make sense of all this because it's not that the one party is in the total ascendancy. And that's why I don't think it's a political realignment as much as it is a philosophical realignment because what does Tim Pool – David Rubin, Tulsi Gabbard have in common, and what does like Liz Cheney, Bill Crystal, the Lincoln Project, what do those guys have in common? And I, I think this goes down to they may disagree on individual issues with like so Bill Crystal doesn't agree on individual issues necessarily with Elizabeth Warren, but you know what they both agree on? That the power should be concentrated. I mean Elizabeth Cheney. Sorry. No, 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 Elizabeth Warren. Warren. Oh, yeah, okay, I'm, okay. I'm saying that like Bill Crystal and, and Bernie Sanders oh, okay. disagree on a lot of issues, but they both agree that power should be concentrated in the hands of people like them, and they will wield it in such a way that is good for the country. It's the vision of the anointed, right? Yeah, <laughs> and and what is what is Tulsi Gabbard and like. Thomas Massey have in common skepticism of skepticism power. of that concentration of political power in the hands of Washington, D.C. It's not necessarily that either of them, because neither of them are an anarchist, right? It's not mm. that, that either of them think there should be no power, right? No government power. It's the it's the you're approaching it from a position of inherent skepticism. Yeah. It's it's I'm coming to the table. You it's the burden of proof is on the pro government side. To, to prove why we should have more government force in this area. Yeah. Because my starting point is I'm not comfortable with more federal power. Yeah. But on the left, increasingly, these people like Bill Crystal and the Lincoln Project and some of these other people, they might disagree with Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders on what the top marginal tax rate should be. But they have absolutely no concerns about, oh, yeah, we definitely need Washington, D.C. to be running X, oh, Y, yeah. and Z. They want they they all agree that experts should be in charge. They may disagree on which experts, but there's a reason why George – the Bush family has far more in common with the Clinton family um, or the Obama family than they ever would with, like, the Paul family. Yeah. And, and so what I – am actually encouraged by on all of this. I think it's a fair trade-off. Oh, yes. <laughs> I will take I totally Tulsi agree. Gabbard in exchange for Bill Crystal any yeah. day of the week. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, again, I feel like that's where, that's where I want the debate to be. I want the debate to be in an area where I could sit down with somebody like Tulsi Gabbard or somebody with like Tim Pool and say, okay, we're going to talk about healthcare policy. I don't think the government 
you know, does a good job with healthcare policy. You probably don't either, but you think there's some role. I think there's less role or maybe no role. And so we're going to have a discussion on what that looks like. And, and the two most important things about that is both of us would be going into that discussion with what is the end state? The end state is, is we want people to be able to have access to healthcare. We're going to have a discussion on what's the best way to do this. But the, the beautiful thing about that type of discussion is the metric that we use to decide what works is based off of whether or not people have access to affordable health care. It's not who Quality. gets to, to accuse the other side of being evil first. It, it's, not, it's, not, it's not the uh, accusation that you're, you're, you're evil if you don't agree with me. And it's the recognition that there could be an answer that doesn't include the government running it. Right. If you've already come to the conclusion that, of course, we have to have the government running it because, my gosh, the private sector is mean and evil or they're well, not the experts, then, then how do we have a discussion with somebody? But I, I could have a discussion with somebody like Tulsi or Tim um, or David Rubin and say, OK, look, you think there's this role. I think there's this role. Now let's look at what. OK, what's the metrics? What are the standards that we use mm -hmm. in order to determine whether or not this approach works? And if it doesn't work, we change the standard. We don't come back and be like, well, that's because you didn't give me enough money and power. What, what you're trying to say here, I, I feel like, is that it is easier for you to compromise without compromising your principles because compromise has become a dirty word. And yeah. for good reason, I would argue, because yeah. for very long – what the way that we've been dealing with compromise for us on the right is the left wants to burn down our house. We don't want to burn down our house. So we're going to compromise and burn down half our house. <laughs> That's not a compromise, a, 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 an actual compromise. And we haven't had actual compromises basically since the days of Reagan, right? With Tip O'Neill mm -hmm. an actual compromise would be, we both want this end state you think that the best way to get there is through X. I think the best way to get there is through Y. How about we pass a bill that does a little bit of Y and does a little bit of X and we see which one of those routes is more effective. We come back in two or three or five years and we reevaluate. And you know what? If X doesn't work, then we scrap X but that's and we problem, go with Y, but we're, we haven't done that in a long time. It's I feel because like we don't want the same in state. Can I just say that? Well, we no, we don't. At, Nick is is very um, Nick constantly says this one thing and he he always says, you know, we both want people to be happy, healthy, prosperous and free. The problem is, is that's not true. That statement is no longer true because you have one section of the population that does not want certain people to be happy. They only want the people they want to be happy. They do not want certain people to be prosperous or they don't want anybody to be too prosperous. And you don't, they don't want everyone to be free. They only want the types of freedoms they want. And so the problem is, is that that statement is no longer true, even if we wish it was. And so when you're looking at someone who they're operating under the assumption that we can have a conversation about this because we're both trying to get to this glorious end state. The problem is we're not both trying to get to the same end state anymore. And when your goal is freedom for individual liberty, you want people to be able to go as far as they can go and, and um, produce what they, they want to produce as long as they're not hurting their neighbor. But this other person is wanting to restrict everything some people do because they don't think they should get too wealthy or they don't think that their religion is good or, or their religious views are, um, are good. I mean, we're living in a time right now where there are people who um, want certain tenants within the Christian faith to just be canceled. And when you're operating under that assumption where it's like, no, some of these people or a good number of these people now are authoritarians and they want to force you to do what they think is right. Your instinct is not the same. That's why we're polarized. That's why we can't get to the same result. And you even have people on the right who don't want the same result either because they're more obsessed with the power and keeping the power in the hands and they don't actually understand the issues they believe in. And so you either like who they like or not, and they don't mind the government force as long as it's wielded the way they want it wielded. And yeah. so no, I, I am true. coming from well, a point <laughs> now where I'm looking at this going, some of these people are realizing, and I feel like I imagine, and I don't know, I haven't had a conversation with her, but I would imagine that Tulsi Gabbard realized really quickly when she was on that presidential debate stage that she was, that, that where she was within her ideology 
was actually a kind of lonely place. Mm-hmm. And and that there were a lot of folks that really just didn't believe in that with her. And that was probably a harrowing, heartbreaking moment when she realized do, that. Do you think that she was on the stage hoping that there were more yes. blue dog Democrats I, in I, this country? I would imagine she was hoping that she would appeal to the people who were still like connected to reality mm-hmm. or still connected to reason in some way. And she probably realized there weren't a lot of them anymore. I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And as Nick has said often, it's the difference between these people are comfortable using force to achieve what they want and we over here don't believe the government should be able to use force to achieve what we feel to be right. But how do we get to the point in the United States where everybody understands that the use of force is not a good thing? Well, you have to have that dialogue. To, to Tina's point, what I was bringing up earlier, and, and Tina did bring up a good point. Like when I said, well, it's opening up the possibility for compromise. I'm trying. I, I I wasn't able at the time because I, I wanted. Squish. I, well, hang, <laughs> I wasn't disagreeing hang, with no, you. No, no. I know. I know that you weren't. Um, I I want to clarify that because everything you said is correct, and I agree with everything you said. What write I, that down. Everybody, write that down. No, it's true because we are getting to a point where it's almost as if half the country doesn't actually want the same end state as us. But what I was trying to say was is that there are people who do disagree with us at the table that do want the same end state. They're just not a majority of the left anymore. The, the, the left is now, the Democratic Party has been taken over by leftists, not liberals. Mm-hmm. I, would cl- I, I would clarify that those are two separate forces. And there's not a whole lot of liberals, certainly not a lot of liberals that are actually in office. I mean, Tulsi's no longer in office and she's no longer in the Democratic Party. And what I mean by the difference there is I can come to somebody who's a liberal and say, we disagree on what the top tar- uh, you know, marginal tax rate should be. We disagree about what role government should have in healthcare, but I know that the motivations of somebody like Tulsi for engaging in politics are a lot different than the motivations for somebody like Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. um, or a lot different than the motivations for the typical Democratic politician, which is seize power. Um, it's a lot different from Terry McAuliffe, mm-hmm. right? Like, I don't think that that Tulsi really was power hungry. I think that she disagrees with us on many, many things, and we shouldn't ignore those disagreements. We should talk about those disagreements. Mm -hmm. That's what the whole political process is about. And I hope that my side wins in those (laughs) debates, right? Like That's why we have elections. I want people who are liberty conservatives to be in office and actually pass laws to limit government power. And I want us to lower taxes and protect the unborn and protect gun rights and all that stuff. But I'm happy to have conversations with somebody on the left. I wish that the Democratic Party had more Tulsi Gabbards. I'm actually well, disappointed I, that she I left think, the party, but I know why she no, did. No, I think Tina brought up a really good point. I, I think that, um, and and again, I, I, I'd, I'd love to ask her this question. I, I think she found herself in a situation where she said, when, when she describes why she joined the Democratic Party. Now remember, she's a combat veteran, you know, everything else. She loves her country. So she loves her country. She was patriotic. Um, she saw... She saw the Democrats, she, and she talks about this. She goes, when I first read about Democrats, a lot of it was focused on this idea of civil rights and civil liberties. And it was the idea of, you know, gosh, there was, there was a lot of people to include Democrats that had pushed the Vietnam War, but then there was other Democrats that were really fighting against that and fighting against with their own, their own party based off of what she thought were good principles. And then when, and the, and, and, she said what she read about Republicans at that time was, and they were the kind of on the side of big business, right? And, and status quo and, and the establishment. Yeah. yeah. And, and so she was inspired by all of these things. And that's where she, she felt like her role was in is to run for Congress and everything else. Okay. I, I mean, I can understand that. I might not agree with that interpretation of, of history, but I, I can understand if that's what you believe. And, she got to the point where, and, and this is the part where, again, I think it's admirable for someone that for 20 years, it would have been really easy to just stick with your tribe. And, and you know, again, to Tina's point, if, if you've invested that much time and effort in something, you don't just like walk away and leave it. In fact, you've seen people that have done that before, like Arlen Specter, where it was, oh, I'm walking away now, and now I'm running my as change, this. My change in party will enable my reelection. Yes, yeah, <laughs> and, and hers was totally opposite. But I do think she tried like this one last ditch major effort to determine whether or not there was a remnant within the Democratic Party that could be marshaled and organized around those core ideals. 
And I think what she found is there's no there's appetite no, for it in the no Democratic force. Party. There is an appetite for it in the Republican Party, but let's be honest. The reason why we're seeing certain Republicans leave, too, is not just because, you know, they're, they're angry at Trump. Many of them though are, but, yeah, but the reason really why the reason. reason why some of them are leaving is because they also don't have an appetite for that emphasis on individual liberty or free markets or or yeah. you know they they too want to control. They want a state controlled by experts. They just want to pick the experts. Yeah. And their disagreement, as as we said before, Liz Cheney and Bill Crystal and the Lincoln Project guys. They disagree with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on who those experts are. Yeah. But they don't question the idea that, oh, yeah, the government should be run by the experts yeah. and the government should play a very active role in society mm -hmm. once those experts are in power. They just happen to believe that they're the experts and, you know, Elizabeth yeah. Warren and Bernie Sanders aren't. But they do fundamentally agree on that. And that is why we're seeing this this. As you said at the beginning of this podcast, this philosophical realignment. It's not a political realignment. It's a philosophical realignment. And this has been going on for quite some time. Going, You could date it back to the 90s or 80s. I mean, Ronald Reagan used to be a Democrat as well, mm -hmm. right? And so I yeah, do— Yeah, but, but even then, this what is different now—and and I'd love it if someone in the audience wanted to chime into this, like on, on the chat or in volley or something like this, to say, well, no, actually it happened— First time in my lifetime, I'm 43. First time in my lifetime, I can I can remember a particular moment in time, like a 10-year period, where major figures on both sides are switching or realigning. Yeah. And and again, the, what's the common thread? The common thread that I see is whether or not how comfortable you are with the concentration of power and authority to get what you want. The, the Bill Crystals and the Liz Cheney's are every bit as comfortable as the Elizabeth Warnens and the Bernie Sanders and the AOCs in using power to get what they want. They just they have some different objectives and they would use the power differently. But that's still the mechanism. Yeah. Right. Your your Thomas Massey's, your your Rand Paul's, um, your your Tulsi Gabbard's, um, your your Tim Pools. Right. They're, they're more on the side of like, no, 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 we don't trust this mechanism. Like we, we, we can have our, our disagreements on some of these things over here, but can I also point we out still, we still want to decentralize power and we still want to protect individual liberties and choices because we recognize yeah. that if you if you eliminate that and you start to restrict speech and you take away people's ability to defend themselves, that can lead to some really bad stuff. Yes. And 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 thank God for that philosophical realignment. Because if I'm being perfectly honest, there's been times where I've looked at the Republican Party and it felt like my own philosophy of the Republican was dwindling against the people that are far more and far more attracted to this notion of using the state to get what they want. Whereas I said, well, wait a second, that the whole thing I'm trying to conserve, right? We're talking about conservatism. The whole thing I'm trying to conserve is the idea the government has a very limited role to play in society. And that our job should not be, well, we manage the budget a little bit better than you do, but we spend the same amount on all the same stuff. Can I just say it, if there's, it, it should have, no, you can say it when I'm done. <laughs> it should have been, it should have been, no, we're, we're going to claw back some of this authority that the federal government never should have taken, yeah. that in some cases your state governments never should have taken, and we're going to give it back to individuals. And some people are going to make bad decisions, but at least when they make a bad decision, it's affecting them, not 330 million other people that have very little say in the decision-making process. Yeah. If there's nothing else that, that Trump did that is applause-worthy, it's that he might not have even intended for this to happen, yeah. but he exposed the intellectual rot within the Republican Party and the conservative movement. And because some of these people were so opposed to him because of his tweets or his yeah. his personality or whatever it was, many of it had nothing to do with actual policy, yeah. but, but many of these people were so opposed to them that they just walked out of the room. And you know what? For the vast majority of those people, for the Bill Crystals of the world and the Lincoln Project guys and all those people, good riddance. Bye, Felicia. <laughs> I'm I am so happy that those people are gone because getting back to the discussion that Tina was bringing up earlier, that like we can't, you know, we don't have the same end state. I do not have the same end state as Bill Crystal, and I don't have the same end state as as Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. We do not agree. Mm -hmm. On the on on the end of the road, we don't agree on on the way to get to the destination, and we don't agree on the destination either. But I do think that I share the same end state as Tim Pool, as Tulsi Gabbard, as 
Jordan Peterson, as Brett Weinstein, people that started on the left. People forget that, like, Jordan Peterson worked for the uh, the new Democratic Party in Canada, the, the Socialist, Socialist Party. Party in Canada. Brett Weinstein worked for Evergreen College, like the most <laughs> yeah. left-wing university in America, yeah. You think UC Berkeley is left-wing? No. No, Evergreen, no. Evergreen makes beat. Berkeley look conservative yeah. by comparison. <laughs> and these are people, and, and Tim Pool as well, these are people that started on the left. They started from a different point than I, because I've yeah. never really been on the left. Mm -hmm. I've always been at least somewhat of a conservative, even when I didn't really follow politics as a kid. But these are people that all started from the left, and their journey over the past five years or so has has meant that they've they've abandoned the left, or in some ways the left has abandoned them. And I'm really glad that they've they've moved in in the direction that they have because I share much more in common with those people in terms of the shared end state and skepticism of government power and the use of force than I do Bill Crystal or any of those people in the Republican movement, all these, these, I hate the phrase, but everybody knows what I mean when I say this, all these rhinos that have quit the Republican party because they didn't like orange man or his tweets over the last few years, but were completely comfortable with violating the fourth amendment and shutting down their opponents and using government force to intimidate their political foes. All these people that have quit the Republican party, they were all cheerleading the FBI this year. Mm -hmm. They've all been cheerleading the DOJ. They've all been cheerleading the, the, the wars in the middle East. They've all been cheerleading eroding our fourth amendment rights and oh, the well, these are, these are people that voted to renew FISA. Yeah. You know? And they all supported the NDAA and the Patriot Act and all of this stuff. And I disagree with all of that. And so my, my point is, is that I can compromise without compromising my principles. I can compromise with somebody like Jordan Peterson or Tim Poole. I can sit down and have a discussion about it. And we, we come from different backgrounds. But I know that at the end of the day, the the end state of those people, I have a lot more in common with them well, there, than I do with some of these people, these fake people on the right that have deserted us and joined the left. Well, One there, thing that's a little bit noteworthy is that a lot of these people who are leaving the party they came from, yeah. they're not joining the other party. Mm -hmm. So Republicans have left, but they still are not. It's not like they left the Republican Party and decided to become Democrats. They just are in this weird limbo space that is more like an independent space. Um, and same with the, the people who have left the left. They had, it's not like they became hardcore right wingers either. Uh, I mean, Tulsi is not a Republican. She, but she left the democratic party. So I feel like the people who, so when I, when I'm saying that we don't agree on the end state anymore, I think that the people we used to be able to talk to, who did agree on the end state and we could negotiate a way to get there um, depending on whose ideas, you know, rose to the top. Mm -hmm. uh, those people no longer, they, they no longer are aligned with that end state. The goal is no longer aligned. So it's not just, Oh, um, you know, I, I realize that you're just way more left wing. No, no. What it is is they realize that, these people are, like I said before, authoritarians who want to um, force a section of the population and and dehumanize them. That's one of the reasons why we've yeah. become so polarized is because it is no longer about getting to the end state and having good ideas on how to get there. It is now we believe in two completely different end states. One, one is where people are forced into what the, this majority wants to do and another where we are free to make our own decisions. And, and as long as we're not hurting somebody else. And so I, I think in another thing I thought was interesting is somebody brought up, they're like, wait a second, you know, you're, you're, this was on my page. Somebody's like, Oh, you're, you're trash in Tulsa. You didn't mind when Trump left the democratic party and they immediately came in. Well, that was different. Trump was mainly a Democrat just for, for business reasons. And it's like, okay, that's not better. <laughs> it's, it's not yeah. better to say, okay, in one, in one situation, you had someone that honestly believed that this was the correct way to think about something, and so they fought for it. And another one, what you were claiming is that, oh, well, Trump knew this was wrong, but did it anyway because it was going to – I don't even know if that's an accurate reflection of, of Trump's own ideological conversion on certain issues. But if but, that's the narrative. But if that's the narrative. You don't get it. <laughs> and, and the thing I like to point out to people, I, I talked about this the other day um, – I, I used to be what was what probably would have been considered a neocon. And and it's like Can you it, explain what that yes, is? Yes. Well, Bill Crystal is considered was considered like the head of the neocons. Right, but right? explain what it is exactly. I, just let me finish. Okay. <laughs> um so there there was this idea that 
um, it, it was kind of built around the, the, the concept of, again, it was almost like big government republicanism. And I would have never called it that. I would have never thought of it that way. But when 9-11 happened and it was we're going to war and it's the Patriot Act and all this other stuff, and Department of Homeland Security, I was sitting there saying, yeah, we need to do this. We need to fight terrorism, right? These guys are coming after us. They hate our freedoms, blah, blah, blah. And, and again, it's not that I don't think that military action or strikes against terrorist organizations wasn't appropriate. I absolutely think it was appropriate. But going through that process of not only going to war and then going back and watching how things were, were being conducted. And please hear me on this. I'm proud of the service I rendered and I'm sure as hell proud of the people that I served alongside. That doesn't mean I always have to be proud of us national defense policy. And, and one of the things that struck out to me was, well, I do believe that there are times where war and violence is necessary Watching the way we were conducting certain things led me to believe that some of the inefficiencies in what we were doing were deliberate. And it led me to the conclusion that, you know what, there might be some politicians that are far more concerned with being at war than they are with preventing or winning the war. Because their interests are more aligned with the conflict, not ending the conflict in America's favor. And that will that will cause you to be skeptical. But at the same time that I, I was kind of reevaluating, especially things like the Patriot Act, which I oppose now because it gave the federal government way too much power at the expense of our civil liberties. I remember back when that passed and you had a problem even then you were trying to work through on I it. thought so that there was- You were I, not always for the Patriot Act, so don't give I, people that idea. No, no, but, no, but understand at that point, like our, our, our nation had just been attacked. I had friends dying overseas. I wanted to go shoot terrorists. Right. And I looked at a lot of the inefficiencies with respect to intelligence agents and being able to share information that were ridiculous. So, yes, it's true. It's not like I liked every aspect of the Patriot Act, but I still defended a lot of it. I remember and when I because I've known Nick for about a decade now. I remember uh, like 10 years ago, maybe even more than that, that that because I was, you know, like the hardcore, like Ron Paul libertarian, you know, and the NSA and all that stuff. And, and Nick and I actually when I was younger, went back and forth about this, and Nick was was taking a more not hardcore neocon, you know, like pro surveillance no, state, well, but but you you were more you were more nuanced in that position. No, no, let me let me let me let me roll. Okay, let me finish this whole thing so I can explain where people know where I was actually at. Do I still think there's a role for the De Department of Defense? Do I still think there's a role for you know in intelligence work? Yes. Where where the break came for me. Was looking more was looking more at two things. It was what is what actually keeps the United States, and by that I don't just mean geographically. What actually keeps our constitution and way of life safer? Mm -hmm. Is it doing this or is it doing something else? Is it just giving unbridled power to these organizations and agencies because they're supposed to be doing the right thing, or is it actually making sure that we have relevant oversight to make sure? They're doing the right thing. Yeah. Right. That was one aspect of it. The other aspect of it, though, came down to what do I really believe about the government's role within a free society? And I came to the conclusion that there was a lot of things that the government was doing that Republicans had pushed. Right. No child left behind, you know, et cetera. And it was this idea that, no, we're going to improve education. Yeah, but that's not the federal government's role. And if you give that role to the federal government, you don't just get what you hope the good things will be. You get everything that comes with the concentration of power in the hands of relatively few people. And that's dangerous. And that's where I started to, to emphasize on this whole idea that, no, what I really believe in and what I believe is at the heart of what Americanism is supposed to be, it really is that emphasis on individual liberty. And the only way you can protect and preserve that is that you have to limit power and you have to make sure that it is not concentrated in the hands of a relatively small political elite that can essentially get away with anything they want to do, provided they believe it falls within the general welfare or the, or the commerce clause. So, so that's what it really came down to. It came down to this idea that I, I became skeptical of how eager certain politicians were to go to war as long as it wasn't them doing the fighting. And I became skeptical of even when they sent us to war. And even when I thought that there were some legitimate reasons to go, it was like, why are we not winning this? And it sure as hell wasn't because we weren't good enough. I guarantee you the men on the men and women on the ground serving were good enough. It was because there wasn't a clear strategy for what exactly we were there to accomplish. Yeah. And then on the other side, it was, and then domestically, it was the idea that 
no, my, my goal is not to try to get every single American to be compelled by law to believe what I believe, live the way I think they should live. I have some very, very definitive opinions with respect to every aspect of life. And most of it is based, well, no, it is based on my Christian faith. But I'm not here to use the course of power of government to compel you to believe those things. Mm -hmm. I believe its role is to make sure that you have the liberty to make your decisions, but you have to assume responsibility and you can't infringe on the liberties of others. And so that that was the the again my own political and philosophical transformation with respect to how I looked at the role of government and what I expected out of my political party and the people that carry that banner. Yeah. And what I've come to find is there's a lot of people that think the way I do and there's a lot of people that don't. That's very true. And on that point, I want to get to the last segment that we've got today where Nick and I were talking about this yesterday as well. Where do you think things are going to be going? Right. We've started this process over the last like five years, maybe 10 years, but really like five years or so of this ideological self-sorting in America where we've got these people that came from the left. Right. Tim Pool, mm -hmm. Tulsi Gabbard, stuff like that. And, and they've they've moved away from the left. Or as I said earlier, the left has kind of moved away from them. Mm -hmm. And then you've got these people that, you know, they had been Republicans in the 90s or early 2000s. But as soon as Trump came along, they they bolted. And, and, and they didn't join the Democrats, but they openly campaigned for them. They're opposing conservatives now. So where do you think this is going to be going? I, I kind of want everybody's take on this, even if it's only for like a minute or two. All right. Everyone gets 60 seconds. So Nick, let, uh, actually, right, let's I'll, end I'll, with you. Well, I'll, I'll, lead it, I'll lead it off because okay. I kind of want to. Okay. I, I think there's a couple of things. One, I don't think, I don't think this is just, again, a political realignment. So I, don't, I think the, Democrat, the fight within the Democratic Party is actually largely over. I think the Democrats know where they're going. I don't see a single Democrat that is really standing up against kind of the Bernie Sanders AOC wing of the party. Joe Biden was supposed to represent that. He does not. So that's that's the where the momentum is within the party. The Republican Party, that's still up for grabs. It's either going to go to more of a, a you know, liberty-based, small government, free market, um, genuine free market party, or it, it's going to be this kind of big government republicanism. That that has not been decided yet. Um, with these people that are leaving the respective parties, I think like the Bill Crystals of the world and whatnot, I think for all intents and purposes, they're just going to be on the left. I think a lot of people that have left the left for all intents and purposes are going to be predominantly on the right. Again, the primary difference is... The issue has largely been settled in the Democratic Party, and I don't think there's enough Republicans going that way to, to cause kind of a, a re-engagement on some of those core issues. There is the possibility for that in the Republican Party, and the Republican Party can move to being more of a, again, what I think it should be, which is a liberty, small government, free market-oriented institution. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I think is going to be interesting that's kind of an aside from that, so that's the, the, the parties, geography. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens over time because every time Democrats get in power, there's going to be this intense desire to push things from Washington, D.C. And I think as more people move, not just for tax reasons, but actually move for ideological reasons in other states, you're going to see a push by certain governors to really push the issue on the Tenth Amendment, on federalism. And I think I think we are about to see, we're already seeing it on some levels, I think we're about to see a, a paradigm where states push, look at the federal government and go, make us. So some of them. That some, some of them. Some are going to be joining the feds. Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. But that's that's what I see. Yeah. That's what I see. I happening. think that's a good prediction. I'm not going to make a prediction as to what's going to happen over the next couple of years, but I do think that we really, really made a good point when it came with as far as what you said, Christian, about compromise. Because uh, I agree, compromise is usually a bad term. But I, I think that it's really important for us to understand that those on the left hold their beliefs just as tightly as we do, whether or not they are right or wrong. We know they're wrong. Um, but I, I think that we're going to see a lot of good things happen when we have people like Tulsi and Nick sit down at a table and say, we don't agree on health care policy. We may not agree on monetary policy, but we can agree on the foundation of what it is we believe individual liberty, uh, free markets. They may not be able to agree on that. I don't know at this point. Uh, but at that point, you're able to see that, okay, we don't agree on how to get to this end state, but we do agree in the end state. And I think that opens the door for so many conversations with people that may not be as politically inclined that if you and I can agree on the end state, then we can have a discussion on how to get there. I, I would. There's one thing I would add to that, though, sure. because I, I don't think that's it. I disagree okay. with that. Um, 
it's not just about we agree on the end state and then we're de debating about the process. We also have to be able to come up with common standards that apply to both sides sure. when we grade whether or not the process is achieving the end state. Because if you're going to if you're going to resort back to every time I use this process and every time it fails, it's well real socialism's never right. been tried. Okay, then you're coming up with an unfalsifiable claim where you've essentially decided the government's the way we do this, so get on board. I might compromise with you a little bit as long as you've conceded the larger point. That's the benefit of what we see with someone like a Tulsi or a Tim Pool or or a David Rubin is they're they're willing to agree on an end state. They're willing to have discussion with respect to process, but they're actually willing to use common metrics yeah. that apply to both of us when we grade it. And they're also willing to apply a similar moral philosophy and understanding that the state is not compromised. The state yeah. is force. And so if, if they're willing to accept those things, that's where a great conversation can actually flourish. But if, if it's just the end state, I, everyone can justify that in their minds what they want is happy, healthy, prosperous, and free, even if it's not what they produce. Yeah. So they have to be willing to agree on a certain moral philosophy and approach to this, and they have to be willing to agree essentially on, on objective standards by which it can be measured. Well, Tina, I want to hear what you have to say in terms of mm -hmm. if you've got any predictions for the ideological, philosophical self-sorting that's going on. I'm, you know, it's really, there's an interesting observation that a lot of the people, when they do leave the party that they used to identify with, they also leave some of the policies that they touted behind. And one, one thing on the front end I can see, there was a candidate a few years back, and I'm not going to name any names, um, who wanted to run for a particular office. And when I asked questions about where they stand on certain issues, they were extremely weak in the life issue. Mm -hmm. Now they went out and they touted the life issue and they rah rah did the life issue because they knew where their votes were coming from on the right. And when that person decided not to be a Republican anymore, um, that went away with it because they really only adopted that policy position because they knew where the votes were coming from. I feel like that happens on both sides a little bit. Yeah. There are some people that really latch on to a particular issue only because the, the team they've joined, um, cares about it. So it's like, I'm, I'm on the team with the good guys. The other people are the bad guys. The good guys believe this. So therefore I will believe this when people finally stop doing that and they finally go, I am on this side of the aisle because I believe this, 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 and this, and it aligns. And I, I'm a good fit here rather than going, Oh, well, I kind of like this issue here. Uh, I'll make the rest fit, you know, trying to fit a, a puzzle piece into the wrong, wrong slot. I, I feel like, um, we're going to start seeing a much more honest conversation about some of these things, because at this point it's your these people are the devil because they think this and I've got to stay in line with my party. Well, I've got news for you. You know, if the Republican Party suddenly was no longer pro-life and they were no longer, uh, you know, liberty focused and they didn't care about property rights anymore. And let's say they completely just all, all these positions switched. I would no longer be one. So I think that um, I think we do have people who are doing some some introspection and trying to figure out where they really are. And as parties go pretty extreme in a direction, that starts to happen more. And I so I do think we're going to see more people going, you know, this has gotten a little crazy. And, you know, it's funny because I, I thought back in the day when people were going, you know, you know, the, I could see the left just going so far to the left and starting to just go into areas that I thought were just insane, but we still had people going, well, the right has gone so far to the right. And I'm going, I, I don't see that. I feel, mm -hmm. I feel like the right has stayed exactly where it is. And you're just believing what these people are telling you. How could you not right. see it? Should <laughs> But, um, but the only reason the right looks like it's so far to the right is because the left has gone the Overton off window the shifted. deep end. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I think that we are going to start having people, they're either going to go along with it because they've chosen their team and they're never going to change their team, or they're going to go, wait a minute, we need to push back. But the problem is 
the left has this cancel culture thing. And if you disagree with them on something, uh, you're ostracized and no one wants to be ostracized, especially on the left, because on it, I believe on the left, it, it really has become sort of their religion. And so you don't want to be ostracized from your religion. And um, so I'm kind of thinking we're going to continue to see the left go and go and go. And they might temper their argument a little bit. They might uh, tamp it down kind of like they did when Guzman introduced her bill uh, to take kids away from parents who didn't um, affirm their dysphoria. Um, you're going to start to see them go, oh, whoa, 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 we can't talk about that. It's an election year. And so they're going to be careful. Um, but I think more and more, we're going to see that quiet power being said out loud and we're going to see the polarization hit. And you're going to remember there was a time when there were some Republicans that didn't want to admit they were a Republican because they had been painted in such a bad light. I feel like we are now approaching a time when the Democrats are going to Autom it's going to automatically be assumed that they believe X because they have said the quiet part out loud so much that they've made themselves look bad. You're going to have a section of the Democrat, you know, uh, contingent who is like, I, I kind of don't want to call myself a Democrat anymore. Just, just like we had on Republicans a few years back. And so, I mean, that was a long explanation, but that's kind of... Yeah, you took up all the time that was reserved for me. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. 60 it, seconds, go. Um, Welcome to my world, Christian. <laughs> uh, no, I, I'm, I, I'd be hypocritical to uh, be mad about that. But I, I think that what's going to happen is that the ideological self-sorting is going to actually exponentially accelerate. I think it started slowly. In an exponential curve, it, it, it looks like this. And so within a year you will have the same amount of people self-sorting as you did the last five years. Yeah. And what I think is going to, there'll be good and bad consequences for that because to Nick's point, I think geographic polarization in some ways is going to get better within, within states. It's actually going to get muddier, but between states, it's going to get, it's going to get more extreme because conservatives are going to keep moving to places like Tennessee and Idaho. And I think people on the left are going to keep moving to other left-wing states. You're going to go from New York to Massachusetts. And so I think this ideological self-sorting is going to eventually lead to a crisis of confidence within the federal government because between each election, you might have a giant swing one way or the other. And that's going to open up some possibilities for states to reassert themselves and actually take back some of this power that has basically been usurped from them and the people and been uh, um, cobbled together in the hands of Washington, D.C. over the past hundred plus years or so. So in some ways, I think the ideological self-sorting will be a good thing because it'll be able to limit the power of the federal government. But I, I really do think the road is going to be very messy to get there. In some ways, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Well, there you have it. You've got all of our predictions. Go ahead and make your own. Let us know either in the comments or join our volley chat. And you can uh, do a video letting us know what you think and which one of us you think is probably going to be right. Spoil alert, it's me. Anyways, thank you very much for joining, and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick. And once again, thank you for listening.